On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with Jay Karen, who's the longtime CEO of the National Golf Course Owners Association, which is a trade association dedicated exclusively to owners and operators of golf courses of all different types, daily fee, semi-private, private resort courses. Um, and Jay is um, someone who uh, has had an interesting route to the game. Um, he was a history major, and he was kind of on his way to being, um, in all likelihood, a public high school social studies teacher when, as he'll explain, he ended up um, getting involved with the um, NGCOA. And um, uh, although he made some other stops um, between his start with the organization and his current CEO position, um, he um, left behind um, uh, being a history teacher. Uh, but he is someone who I think you'll see is just great to talk with, very energetic. And um, we talk about a whole bunch of issues facing his members and the game generally, including the role of third-party tea time operators, um, uh, the role of um, what I would call non-green grass operators like um, Top Golf. Uh, we touch on um, that Golf Digest article from early last year about uh, the life of the club pro and how that impacts his members who, of course, are employing these folks. And and then finally, um, some of his um, great thoughts on how really to best grow the game. So uh, really a fun conversation uh, with someone who is really an important voice in the game. And I, I think you'll have the same reaction I did um, talking with him, that he is... Um, got a lot of um, energy, a lot of intelligence, a lot of thoughtfulness that he brings to his position. Um, so up next on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, Jay Karen. So welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And I am really pleased today to welcome to the program Jay Karen, who is the CEO of the National Golf Course Owners Association, which, as we'll talk about, is a trade association dedicated to golf course owners and operators, you know, ranging daily fee, semi-private, private resort courses, and one of the country's most powerful people in golf, um, <laughs> ranked number 24 on Golf Inc. Magazine's list. Jay, thanks so much for making the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Larry. Always love talking shop. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So maybe just to give people a little context from, from where you originally came, uh, you grew up, as I understand, or born, I should say, on Long Island, but moved to suburban Atlanta um, when you were, I think, in second grade. That's where you grew up. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about what that was like and you know, if you had, uh, I'm not sure exactly when you got introduced to golf, but I mean, if that was uh, during that time, love to hear about that as well. Or my, my golf origin story. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, New Yorker by birth. And so, and still have lots of family in Long Island. So I consider myself a northerner by, you know, in fact, I, at my own club, there's a North South tournament. And I, I just felt like I have to try out for the North team. I mean, that's where I was born. But um, so, uh, so yeah, we moved around a little bit. <clears throat> we left New York in the, in the, in the mid 70s after my younger brother was born. I've got three brothers and we moved to right outside Detroit, Michigan for a brief period of time and then down to Coral Springs, Florida for a brief period of time. And then we settled in Atlanta. 
my dad was in purchasing in electronics. He worked for Scientific Atlanta. They manufactured all the cable boxes when cable was the big rave, you know, in everybody's uh, living room. And uh, so we got right. free cable. Imagine, imagine four boys. With nice. All the oh, channels, my, I'm know? jealous. Yeah. I'm jealous. <laughs> what, Larry, Larry, when I say every channel, I mean every channel. <laughs> we were very popular in the neighborhood for sleepovers. I bet. Anyway. I bet. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, it was a great, uh, you know, middle class upbringing in Gwinnett County. And yep. my dad, my dad uh, joined uh, a club called um, Summit Chase Country Club in Snellville, Georgia. And it was kind of a blue collar club. It wasn't real stuffy, but it was just a nice middle class kind of blue collar, white collar folks there. And and my mother would drop, it's, this is brilliant. My mother would drop the four of us off in the summer times, early in the morning. And then we'd play, you know, we'd walk 18 holes have lunch and then hit the pool the rest of the afternoon. And she'd come pick us up at four or five o'clock. And I mean, Great. Yeah. what an awesome thing, you know, to have four, I mean, four boys that just can't sit still. Right. Um, and it was probably, you know, a little too hot to be playing sports in the summertime in, in Georgia, like constantly. And so this was a great thing. So I was introduced to, you know, golf kind of in that way, but my, but really I was introduced to playing with my dad. He had a regular foursome on Sundays, he and his three buddies, and there was a time at which I was probably 10 or 11 years old when one of his buddies couldn't make it on a Sunday morning. So he said, Jay, do you want to fill in? And I probably had already been hacking away at it with my brothers, you know, not really taking it seriously. But then I was like, oh, wow, I guess I need to take this seriously. Yeah. And and that began my real journey into loving the game was playing with my dad and his three buddies and learning from them. And one of them kind of took me under his wing a little bit and would teach me and try to help me improve. And, uh, and, that, and then the rest is history. I just fell in love with the game and uh, played high school golf for Parkview High School. And our home course was Summit Chase. So that was fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was that's the that's the origin story. from. Got it. And so I guess I'm 49. It, 49 so, yeah, a long time. Um, and um, at, at some point, and I'll, I'll throw it out here because I, I saw this line that your mom had, um, which I just love. Um, and I, I'm sure we'll get into it more um, as we talk about your career, but um, about, and, and I'll let you spell it out about the grass being greener and kind of what that means and what impact that's had on you. Cause I think it's such a great line. I love it. It's a great line, but Larry, to, now I get to explain the context, which makes it even more interesting. <clears throat> so, uh, and I'll keep this, uh, you know, PG rated. Um, but so I'll, I'll say this, I'll, I'll start by saying that, um, you know, we didn't grow up in a house where we freely talked about the birds and the bees and sex and all of these things. It was, okay. you know, it was the eighties, you know, different, yeah. you know, just different time. They left it to the schools to do that, I guess, but, um, or cable television. Right. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and so this was in, uh, 1990. Uh, 1998, and I was dating, uh, who's now my wife. Um, and uh, and there's an interesting story with NGCOA there too, because there's a connection here between my wife and NGCOA and all this. But it was, right, it was the right. summer, end of the summer of 1998, and I and I was contemplating asking Carrie to marry me. And I was like, I was just madly in love, and I'm just like, I know this is going to be my partner in life. And, right. and I said, but I I had one hang up. And I was like, I'm had this mental block. I'm like, how oh, you know. 
And it was the hangup was like to be with one woman for the rest of my life, that commitment of being with just one. Right. And, you know, and I'm talking, you know, amorously, amorously. Right. Here. Right. And, right. Right. And so I, I so I called my mom and I said and, and I, you know, a source that I normally wouldn't go to for this, but this was a life decision here. And sure. so it's like, Mom, here's my hang up, you know, to be with one woman for the rest of my life. And she said, she said, Jay, you know, they say that the grass is greener on the other side. It's like, no, no. She said, the grass is greener where you water it. I thought, oh my God, how brilliant is that? It really right? is. So obviously in a moment I took from that, obviously it was like invest all of my energy in this person and it will reap rewards. Right. And, and so, so I use, I mean, that is great life advice that certainly can be yep. applied in so many things. And, and I love it that is that it's a different spin on, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side and that's, that's the end of it. But this is really like, it, it, it takes a step further. I'm just like, yeah, oh, it's a positive, right? You want to, you know, invest yeah. in what you have, not cover what you don't have. But so it's a positive Bingo. aspect to it. So it's great. I love that. So let's um, talk about kind of your early career. So, and this is another thing. It's so interesting to me, even though you, you know, had your golf interest, you, you're, you're a history major at Winthrop, um then you go for your master's degree in history at college of charleston and you know my takeaway from looking at this is it sounded like you your thought was hey i'm gonna you know get my master's be a public high school social studies teacher or what have you um and then um you kind of you become a part-time assistant um at ngcoa which leads to kind of a pretty sharp fork in the road for you career rise maybe tell us kind of what was involved there yeah so my career ambition was to be a high school social studies teacher and my vision was that i would uh coach cross country in the fall and golf in the spring and just have this wonderful little idyllic life impacting and influencing the future of america and i just absolutely loved social studies classes you know, uh, the history, civics, you name it. I just loved it all. And so, and the year before I, the year before I actually got my master's degree, my first job at a college, I worked for Kappa Sigma fraternity headquarters in Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. My job though was to, to be on the road throughout North, the, the Northeast United States and into Canada was my territory. I was the guy from nationals who showed up on campus to check on the, the, the chapters and make sure I'm advising them and keep, they're keeping their noses clean and all these things. While I was traveling, I was picking up artifacts that I would even put in my classrooms. Like when I went to the Kennedy Museum, picked up a poster from the Kennedy Museum. When I yeah. went to Gettysburg, I got I got, you know, spent bullets that were shot during the Gettysburg, you know, battle. And I had these art. So I was so excited, bushy tailed, bright eyed to be a teacher. <laughs> and so so I, that's why I went to Charleston was to get my master's. Well, while, while I was going to, you know, in being grad school, I needed I needed money. Right. Uh, and so I had no job. I had no money. I had no car. I, you know, it was just, you know, I had nothing. And so a friend of mine said, Hey, my mom works at this place called NGCOA. And I'd never heard of associations. I mean, as a typical, what was this? I was barely 22 years old, 23, you know, nobody that age knows about associations. Right. They just, right. you know, they're, they're, they're right. kind of invisible organizations. And right. so, so she, she said she works at this organization and she needs uh, some help. Because I, you know, my friends say, I'm going back to school. I'm her helper. So I'm going back to school now. Can you step in and help her part time? I'm thinking, well, sure, that sounds great. So I did. And 
and it was the National Golf Course Owners Association. And the woman was Ann Lindrup that I worked for. And Ann was employee number two, I think. But oh, this wow. was probably this was probably seven years into kind of the existence or the the, the mature existence of, of NGCOA because NGCOA existed since the 70s, but didn't hire its first staff person until 1990. So fast wow. forward to 97, here I am. And so she's the meeting planner, among other things, but she's the, the, the conference director. And so she needed an assistant. So I stepped in. My first assignment was to help uh, negotiate the audiovisual contract for the upcoming conference. And I thought, oh, this is great. And so what had not been done before was shopping the deal. And so I shopped the deal and I saved like $10,000 on the wow. AV. And I was like, oh my gosh, look at this. And I'm thinking, I, this association thing, is this gig is pretty cool. Yeah. It happens to be golf, which is a cool thing. Although I wasn't getting any necessarily golfing. You know, I wasn't playing golf as part right, of it, but right, I was like, right. all right. To be golf adjacent was pretty cool. All right. Yeah. Neat. And then, um, and then two weeks into the job, <clears throat> they said, we'd love for you to do it full time. So I had a choice to make because I was, you know, for those two weeks, I was a full time grad student. So I, I right. switched. I went to part time with my grad degree and full time at NGCOA. And <clears throat> I ended up finishing my master's. It took almost four years to get it because I kind of still held out hope that I would teach. And, but also that, let me finish the master's because it's always good to have a master's degree. Sure. Yeah. And so I, so in the first couple of years at NGCOA, I, I, I went from the assistant to the meeting planner for several months. And then I went into our purchasing program called the smart buy program. And that was where we negotiated deals with companies like John Deere. And at the time, Yamaha golf cars and Pepsi, to get our members, the golf course owners and operators advantages. And I ran the accounts and I thought, this is really cool. And I did, I got to say, side note, Larry, I yeah. did quit NGCOA one winter because I got a teaching offer locally oh. in Charleston at okay. James Island high school. They, it was mid year. So it was like January, mid, mid academic year. <clears throat> and they needed a teacher. I was like, here's my chance. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to, I'm going to teach. And I left NGCOA and this was a year and a half into the job. And it was a terrible situation. Uh -oh. I won't go into great detail, but I yeah. lasted one one day. <laughs> one day. Wow. One, one day. <laughs> one, one. I never saw the clarity and the vision of what my job was going to be, who I was going to become. It just, I saw the handwriting on the wall. Jack, wow. I mean, mixed in that was I was left this pretty awesome job too, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that yeah. I was really enjoying and so I was like, you know what? Nope. I, I'm, and I was hired under false pretenses. I, I was and like, I was not given a ton of information about what I was sure. stepping into. And I thought, sure. and I felt duped. I felt duped. Yeah. And so I was like, so I was like, All right, I'm going back. And luckily they didn't fill my job. And I went right back. And, and, I, and then I became, I was director of membership at NGCOA for about seven years or so. Um, and then, uh, and then I left, I was there for about 10 years and I left and, and did some other pretty wonderful things. Yeah. Yeah. So you, and let's pick up on that. So you're right there, 10 years you go and run, I guess, a couple of other associations, um, in the lodging industry, the professional association of innkeepers international, then select registry. So yeah. you're there, you know, you're in these non NGCOA positions, uh, for about, oh, I don't know, about eight years before you come back as CEO, where you still are at NGCOA. Talk to me a little bit. I'm just curious how those other experiences shaped you and, 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 you know, and how you sort of think that impacted your ability to obviously been very successful as CEO of NGCOA, but what role did those other positions play you think in your professional development? Well, so by the time I left in, in 2007 at NGCOA, I, I had, I had really committed to 
my career as an association executive. I, I, I was not a golf guy. I was an association guy that happened to be in golf. And I knew it yeah. even by that time. I had become a certified association executive. I got very involved in this national organization called ASAE, which is the American Society of Association Executives. But I like to say the association for people who run associations. Yeah, exactly. Which, which it is. Um, it's, a, it's, a pretty, uh, it's a pretty powerful D.C.-based organization with tens of thousands of members because there's an association for everything. Right. And so I knew that I wanted to be a CEO of an organization. I knew that I, you know, kind of like put me in coach. I know I can do this. I want to do this. I want to test it. And at the time in 2007, the CEO of NGCOA was still a pretty young guy, been there since 1990, but, you know, NGCOA was doing very well and he was going nowhere. And he really gave me a lot of space to do wonderful work, but I was ready to kind of spread my wings a little bit. Sure, sure. So we, so I, so I, I applied for this job and took it in the professional association of innkeepers. Basically it was the national trade association for the bed and breakfast industry. Any, any, pro, any kind of property with under 50 rooms, country inns, B&Bs, boutique hotels, that was kind of our uh, niche of the lodging industry. <clears throat> I had to move, though, from Charleston to Haddon Heights, New Jersey, right outside Philadelphia. Oh, wow. With okay. my, my wife and my 18-month-old child at the time. Oh, boy. And my wife had never been out of the South, so that was a cultural shock, you know, <laughs> to be in South Jersey. Um, and so I ran... Uh, I ran... Uh, we call it PAI, P-A-I-I, for a number of years. But what I learned from that, a couple of things that were, I, I think were really impactful to me. One was we went through the recession. I'm, I'm running a hospitality right. organization right. Yeah. when the Great Recession happens, right? So right. discretionary spending shrinks up, all of these things. And so I had to, well, one, the association was already on a downward curve when I took it over. So they, so I, and I knew that. I was like, okay, I'm up for the challenge. But I didn't know how bad it was really till I got there. But but I, I my my task was to turn it around. All right. So that was one thing. I was, I'm having to turn around an organization and we go into a recession, right? Wow, right. So, That's hard. And and we came out the other side and it became beautiful. Like for then for a few years, man, we did some wonderful work. So we went from emergency management to all right, how do we now turn this into a success? And it was going really, really well. And I really enjoyed it. And I love that crowd. The, the people in that industry are amazing. Um, and then I, I was recruited to run Select Registry, which is in the same industry. Actually, a lot of the same people. This was a collection of about 400 high-end kind of quality controlled uh, properties of independent boutique bed and breakfast inns, country inns, et cetera. But it was more of a marketing organization than a trade association. It was a collective. Like we marketed the select registry brand to travelers, but we ran a, an inspection program to make sure that the properties involved were quality. We had a gift card program that we sold to travelers. So it was more of a travel hospitality product than it was an association, but they acted like an association. It was a membership thing, right? So, so I was there and, and that was also a turnaround. When I took it over, it had been on a decline and... So it was a turnaround job and it was wonderful. And I turned it around. I did a lot of work in less than two years to, to get to kind of right the ship. And then um, and then the NGCOA came calling because Mike Hughes, who had been there a long time and only CEO for 25 years um, in 2015, kind of announced that he would he'd be stepping aside. And that's when kind of I went through the search process. They did a national search and I, and I went through it. And, and by that time, you know, I could take what I'd learned from the hospitality or the lodging industry and really apply it to golf. I mean, I went to battle in 2007, 2008, 2009 with the likes of TripAdvisor and Yelp and these, you know, yeah. new, these, these were new Airbnb. These things were 
brand new at this time. People forget, you know, that these have not been around forever. Right, these were right. new companies. It was the Wild West. The way they were treating lodging properties at the time, I'll give you an example, like yeah. Yelp. I remember reading this uh, Wall Street Journal or New York Times article about this new company called Yelp. And it was a profile on the CEO's young brash CEO in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Look at all this. And he made a comment in his interview that he wanted the reputation of businesses to be 100% controlled by the consumer. The reviews. I mean, that's what it's based on, reviews, right? But at the time, he was not allowing the restaurateurs, the hoteliers, or anybody to respond to the reviews. It was 100% yeah. content driven by the yeah. customers. So that means there's so much room in there for fraud, for embellishment, for lies, for inaccuracies, Absolutely. and there's no ability for the managers or the owners to respond. So I, at the time, I had a blog and I blogged about this and I used his name in the blog and basically saying how ridiculous this was. Within 30 minutes of my blog posting, and I guess getting indexed by Google, this guy, the CEO of Yelp, calls me and he, and he sees my blog post where I'm calling him out on this policy. And we had a really frank and constructive discussion about it because I represented the merchants, the business right. owners. I'm like, right. you, it's like, give them, give them the freedom of speech to be able to respond right. to these things. Right. Give them enough rope to hang themselves. Even if they say the wrong things, it's my job to teach them what they should be saying in right. these reviews, right? In their review responses. Within 90 days, they changed the policy, you know, wow. and allowed for mandatory. So I went to battle with them, with TripAdvisor, especially because TripAdvisor had an outsized impact on, uh, on our industry for sure. And uh, it was a wild west. But so I, I, I tussled with these guys and try to make sure that there were fair policies, fair treatment and, and what have you. And, and so I cut my teeth on those things. So when I came back to the golf industry, it had its own alligators and dragons in, in the same space. What we used to call what we call online tea time agencies. They were wreaking havoc economically on our industry. And so I had to kind of carry the flag in the golf industry uh, with companies like Golf Now and 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 some others, uh, when I came back to golf in 2015. So yeah, so there was so going through the recession, difficult times, turning around organizations, and even NGCOA, as as wonderful as an organization has been for a long time, it had been on a downward curve since about yeah. 2007. It also reflected, you know, the Great Recession, the closure of a lot of golf courses. Right. The diminishing diminishing demand, the number of people playing the game had been right. diminishing marginally every year. But you know what? Marginally getting older and older, numbers. right? The population <laughs> getting older, golfers. Yeah. Not only that, but they weren't getting backfilled by younger people. Right. You know, right. So, exactly. So, right. So there was there was uh, we were under what I would call an industry recession for many years, even when I came back and NGCOA as an organization had been on revenue decline, membership decline, and these other things by 2015. So I, I, what I have become is kind of a turnaround CEO, which I wasn't expecting. That's not, but I've kind of been making my career, my executive career on turning around organizations and, and hopefully to, to success stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, apropos of which I know you have a sign in your office that, you know, a smooth sea never made a skillful sailor. And I think, you know, you're, as you're touching on, you're a good exemplar of that because you've definitely been a skillful sailor. And we'll get into some of these particular issues with golf and NGCOA, but let me just, just now that you're back, chronologically in our story here at NGCOA um, and and you take over from Mike and your CEO and starting in fall 2015. Let's just talk a little bit about NGCOA generally, and then we can get into some of these issues you're grappling with and continue to grapple with. Sure. Um, but I, I will, I will confess um, I had not 
before I, I talk to our mutual friend, Craig Kessler, um, I was not familiar with NGCOA. I mean, I, you know, obviously when I think of, you know, the golf, I think of, you know, obviously USGA, PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, PGA, RNA. I know about the GCSAA from, you know, fun of the green keepers, but I wasn't aware of this. And, and it sounds like, you know, as I said at the top, when we introduced you, you know, it covers, you know, it's, it's, oh, you know, semi-private, private resort courses. It really seems to cover the waterfront in terms of golf courses, but maybe I'm going to let you, what, what is sort of the mission of NGCOA, um, you know, for people who uh, like me may not have been familiar with it before our, our show here. Sure. So it's not surprising to hear when people don't know who we are because, because you know, trade associations typically are behind the scenes. Yeah. In a, in a lot of industries, a lot of sectors, the professional societies, we distinguish in the association world between professional societies and trade organizations. Professional societies often represent the profession. The PGA of America is a professional right. society. They represent right. the profession of the PGA. GCSA, great example, Larry. The golf course superintendent, you know, because they wear it on their sleeve. They wear it's on the golf scorecard. You see the PGA logo, yes, you see the GCSA right. logo on golf scorecards right. and all of these. So, and these organizations have been around for a hundred years or longer. NGCOA is the new kid on the block. We were born in the early seventies. We're and we're the, we're still the new kid on the block in the golf industry from that context. But so, and we didn't really get going as I mentioned until about 1990 as a real you know organization. So we are pretty uh, quintessential trade association. So, our, our mission is very generic, but it's, it's to support the success of the golf course business, right? Whereas some of these other organizations want to support the success of the careers and the individuals they represent, we're kind of more holistic over the golf course business itself. And that and that's a demarcation that's kind of important because like taxation issues, labor, environment, these things that we all play in, ultimately it's the total business that we want to see successful. So we're going to you know, deal with the P&Ls and the balance sheets, you know, discussions more so than we might deal with lessons and, you know, and other things. And so we do it in a few ways. So we, we, we tackle our mission uh, through what we call our ACE plan, A-C-E. It's, it's advocacy. Uh, so public policy work, lobbying. The government is usually not our friend, you know, when it comes to a lot of things happening in the space. Although, ironically, there are almost, you know, 2,500 or so government golf courses, you know, so. It, <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. <laughs> so it's funny how, you know, we're, tre we're treated a certain ways in certain contexts, but then we're beloved in others. But but um, so advocacy <laughs> is a big deal. Federal, you know, a lot of federal stuff, a lot of state level, local legislation and policies we get involved in to protect the interests of golf. Uh, our C on the ACE is for commercial programs. We negotiate deals with a lot of national vendors uh, so that our members can can get advantages. Yamaha golf cars, Pepsi, uh, Toro, Rainbird, you name it. Uh, and then E is for education. It's, it's been, I, over the long haul, education has been our crown jewel. Uh, we've published Golf Business Magazine for about uh, 25 to 30 years. Trade it. You, know, you may not have ever read it, Larry, because it's a trade. You know, the only time you might have read it is if you're sitting in a locker room in a private club and there's a random golf magazine hanging around. You might see Golf Business Magazine. But every golf course in America has been getting Golf Business Magazine for probably nearly 30 years. Wow. And we put on the golf we put on the golf business conference, which is the annual meeting of our members, our owners and our operators. We do that at the PGA show in January. We cover all kinds of topics, everything from food and beverage to risk and you know, liability to uh, dynamic pricing and yield management of your T-sheet to you know golf entertainment, how to build a simulator business at your golf course, cover the gamut on education at that meeting. 
In the summertime, we host a meeting called the Multicourse Owner and Resort Operator Retreat. It's MCOR for short. We do it in Monterey, California, usually, and it's, and it's for the big guys in our industry. You have to have six or more golf courses to kind of get a ticket to this. Wow. Wow. We've, been, we've been doing that for almost 30 years, um, and it's a very different kind of education. Definitely executive level, kind of Silicon Valley, Wall Street Journal kinds of you know speakers and what have you. And we do other conferences. We just did a technology conference in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago. We did a water summit out there in Las Vegas about the existential crisis of water out west. Uh, so, so education. We do podcasts, and I do a live show every month with Don Ray, who's the vice president of the PGA. Of yeah, America, the PGA, called. right? Yeah, yeah. So, so we do a, a ton of education that all manifests in ways in that we hope are helping our golf courses, whether they're private, public, resort, muni. We have them all to be more successful. Wow, that's 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 great. Um, and I'm sort of curious. I mean, obviously, you know, there's going to be commonalities between what you guys are looking to do versus some of these other associations or or professional associations. I take them. Obviously, growing the game helps everyone, including the golf course operators. But how do you sort of interact with some of these other associations? I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned Don Ray, I know of, and so you know, there's a touch point there with the PGA of America, but um, there's so many different golf associations, you know, there's, there's the ones, you know, I ticked off and GCSAA. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm, there's others I'm forgetting, but, um, then you have all the allied golf associations. I mentioned our mutual friend, Craig Kessler, who's at SCGA here. So I'm sure you interact with some of those. How do you sort of kind of, is there coordination and stuff? Make sure your guys are all rowing in the same direction on some of these common issues or how do you kind of interact with them? Sure. We, I guess we have two ways. One are, I'd say bilateral and another is multilateral. Like for example, we work directly with just the PGA and some initiatives. We help them get the word out about some of their programs and services. We were on a coalition together, just the two of us on, on tea time issues in the golf industry that these these online tea time agencies that I mentioned earlier that we felt were wreaking havoc on the economy, the PGA and NGCOA bilaterally got together to try to influence what was happening in the marketplace at the time. So we did that for a number of years. But um, but overall, we have a construct called the American Golf Industry Coalition, AGIC. It used to be called We Are Golf. That was the brand of it for a number of years. Yeah, I remember hearing and that. that, that that's the ta- yeah, that's the table around which we meet to primarily address public policy issues at the federal level so that we're all in alignment and we're and we're leveraging our strengths to uh, to come together we put on national golf day every spring there we we uh bring you know a couple hundred people to capitol hill for a couple hundred meetings with you know members of congress and the senate to to talk about legislation that we're trying to get passed or legislation we're trying to get defeated or you know other policies that we're trying to influence um but we also around that same table for for a generation now have been collaborating on grow the game initiatives and efforts, diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI efforts. A lot of those things were born out of the, the We Are Golf, at least the collaboration was born out of uh, and, and was handled at the table of We Are Golf and now the American Golf Industry Coalition. The Make Golf Your Thing program that's out there in the space about trying to you know uh, show the goodness of golf to all kinds of populations that is administered and coordinated. A, a lot of it is through the American Golf Industry Coalition. So uh, like when COVID shut down the industry uh you know a couple of things i want to backtrack on a couple of things yeah, one please, is that when, when 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 covid hit this is a good example of like us and the other associations when covid when the rumor was that covid could be this thing right you know like covid had been reported in the news people were getting sick but it wasn't until early march when it was it was really becoming right. evident 
that, man, this could be a really serious situation for the economy, right. for the business. The first phone calls that kind of were made as warnings, I got. I'm get as a Friday night, I'm out to dinner and I'm getting a calls, two calls that same evening from some of two of our largest members, CEOs of our largest multi-course operators. It was it was at the time Club Corp. CEO Club Corp calls me and the CEO of Century Golf calls me, both in the same evening. Like, Jay, we gotta get we gotta get together. We we have to organize the troops because this is gonna start shutting down golf courses left and right. Okay. So I started calling around the horn to some of the other associations. And it was, it was like, okay, you know what? Hey, let's, let's get together next Thursday, next Friday. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get on a conference call. And the emergency energy that I was feeling from the owners was so palpable that I just had to say, no, Monday morning, first thing. Yeah. And we did. And we got it. So, but, and then that was what started the like, okay, let's get around a table. We kind of took the ball and said, okay, American Golf Industry Coalition, this is the table around which we mean to so take the ball here and organize us and let's, let's get together. But, it, but to, to make a point about how we're different is it's the owner who's first going to feel some of these right. economic you know, reverberations happening, that these, these tremors that are coming, um, because it's the owner that's thinking, I've got employees I've got to pay. Right. Right. I've, got, I've got you know revenue that might get shut off here. Like, holy cow, they're going to viscerally feel some of these threats before anybody else does. In fact, rewind the clock 30 years when golf was booming. Construction was booming of golf courses around the country. And it was the owners that said, time out. This is about, I don't know, 1999, 2000. Owners were saying, time out, guys. This doesn't feel right. Supply and demand feels like it's getting out of whack here. Like right. the courses coming out of the ground are, are, are happening faster than we're growing golfers. And Tiger Woods was the thing of the day. But yet right. it wasn't really turning into millions of new. It was just like you could feel the demand and supply curves changing. But yeah. it was the owner that felt it first because for, for all those courses coming out of the ground, it meant more jobs for the other association members, right? More, more PGA professionals get right, employed. More. Right. And so this is actually a good thing overall, but demand was not keeping up with the supply like everybody assumed it would. So right. it's the owner that says, time out, what are we doing to stimulate demand now? Because it's softening. And, and it was NGCOA that created the very first player development program in our industry. It was called Get Linked Play Golf. It was this grassroots ad campaign and it had it had diversity appeal. It had you know professionals, families. It was this amazing ad campaign that we put into the field on a grassroots level, like radio ads, newspaper ads, because those were actually used back in 1999. <laughs> and and, uh, and it was it, it was then then the other associations came around saying, "Oh man, we got to get involved in this too," because we see the writing on the wall as well. And we handed all of this off to what was then called Golf 2020. It was this kind of industry-wide initiative to come together and right. address the growth, the, the need to grow the game. So it was really, you know, the owners tend to be the canary in the coal mine. On I was these just going to use and, that phrase, yeah. exactly what it sounds like, canary in the coal mine. Yeah, it has been. But 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 to, I'll put a, a, a period on this, that we work together very closely and very well with our allied associations to uh, to certainly advocate on our common interests, which is the success of this business. Absolutely. So let me touch on a couple of issues, you, one of which you you uh, mentioned a little bit, but I want to just get a little better sense from you on that maybe particular challenges for NGCOA, third-party tea time providers. And this is so interesting hearing you talk about Airbnb and TripAdvisor and Expedia and those folks in the lodging industry, because I was thinking about this um, as I was looking through your career history and saw that 
thinking, wow, I can see some analogies here. Um, and because um, uh, it's got to be a challenge. Um, maybe talk a little bit about kind of how that's impacted your members, the third-party tea time providers, and kind of where that sort of stands now um, in terms of that relationship. Sure. So when I came back to golf in 2015, in, when you, if you look at the lay of the land as far as online tea time agencies, we used to call them third-party tea time. We, we, we settle on OTTAs, online tea time agencies. It's kind of a playoff OTAs. The hotel industry, lodging industry have had online travel agencies. So we, we, right. we kind of did OTTA. So in the lay of the land in 2015 was there were just a couple of players in that space, really. It was Golf Now and it was uh, uh, teeoff.com, which at the time was owned by the PGA Tour, actually. Mm. Uh, around that time was it owned by the PGA Tour. And then there were some other kind of sundry, you know, last minute teetimes.com, you name it. There were probably 10 or 20 in the space. But actually, over time, Golf Now kept buying up all those other sites, right? So they were acquiring and getting larger through acquisitions of technology right. and other distribution right. sites, which is a pretty typical tactic in the tech industry of how you grow is you acquire your competition, right? There's yeah. a point at which you acquire all of your competition, and then that begins to be troublesome. So I'm, yeah. I'm a little foreshadowing, yeah. a little foreshadowing there for you. <laughs> um, and so, but you know, but my but my my posture towards the space going into golf was like, look. Uh, they're also called aggregators, right? Online aggregators, it serves a great purpose. Consumers freaking love them. And they, the yeah. utility yeah. of them is great. Like I'm flying to Atlanta. Where am I going to stay? Man, if I can go to one website and look at all these options, awesome. Right. If I can, can if I can make my reservation, awesome, right? So nothing against the concept of it because it actually serves a pretty wonderful purpose. It's about the economics of it and how the deals are struck and the value they bring. Right. Because I, I, I mean, a little bit cynical, you know, lower case C <laughs> about, you know, this, this sector, because I'm thinking just from experience, because I'm thinking, all right, you know what? And I'm thinking from the lodging industry, Expedia never caused me to take a trip, right? It's like my wife and I say, hey, you know what? Let's, let's go to Quebec. Let's go to Quebec this summer. Oh, that would be great. Expedia didn't cause us to say, let's go to Quebec, but right. they're there to meet me at the road at the crossroads of when I want to book. Right. Awesome. That's a service, but they didn't stimulate demand. And, I, and I'm making a point here because oftentimes they'll market themselves as though to a property to a golf course. We're going to bring you business. We're going to we're going to generate demand for you. And the assumption here is that they're going to generate demand. It's really not generating demand. It's moving people around. It's moving right. their demand, right? From, or right. moving their booking. Not even moving their demand, Larry. It's moving their booking from one platform to theirs, right? Right. And so it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors as far as the value they bring. But we do know that aggregators are here to stay. Okay, fine. We're now all in the same jungle together. Let's figure this out. Well, what happened in golf was, as I mentioned, golf now kept growing by acquiring not just other distributors, online places where you can book tee times, but they started acquiring other software companies, golf management software companies, GMS systems. And that's basically the engine that runs your golf course, your tee sheet, your booking engine that, that pushes the tee times to a website for display and booking, but it's the central nervous system of the business. Well, they kept buying some of the best companies and the larger companies in the golf space to the point where they had accumulated thousands of golf courses, software and distribution. So they kind of had, they had the central nervous system and they had the distribution to the consumer. This is problematic. It's good. And we've, NGCA Forever has advocated for the decoupling of these layers of technology because what happens is when they control your T sheet, not just distribution on their own site, 
when a distribution source controls your T-sheet, they control access to it. Right. That means, let me give an example. If I'm a golf course and I have my, my software as a golf now software platform, and all of a sudden, Air, let's say I use this example sometimes. Airbnb says, you know what? We want to start offering tee times on Airbnb. So when you book a place in Cleveland, you can also book some golf or book other amenities. Or maybe they're going to do a, a plug-in with open table so you can make a restaurant and a reservation right, while you're right. making your – Right. You know, so, I mean, that's the name of the game is plugging and playing and bringing value together yeah. of technologies. All right. So if Airbnb comes to me, I'm a golf course owner in Ohio, and they say, Jay, we'd love to, for you to list your tee times on our site. I'm saying, you know, I'd love to do that. But guess who gets to say no? Golf now. They can say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to open up the T-sheet to other providers because they're competition with us. On the distribution side, they're competitors right, with us, right? Right, right? So it's like, well, wait a second. That feels a little anti-competitive, doesn't it? You yeah. know, I feel that's, that feels – so that's, that's not a healthy practice, and it got worse and worse and worse over time. By the time I came back to golf in 2015, there were really two major players – it was, like I said, golf now and tee off. Supreme Golf had emerged as well. Supreme Golf was trying to be the kayak of golf. They were trying to sit on top of it all so that golf now fed Supreme tee off. And it did. And it, so so Supreme really it really couldn't at the time be called a third because all their inventory was coming from tee off and golf now. So it was just the aggregator of aggregators. So yeah. looking at the space and thinking, all right, what do we do here? <laughs> and and, and I got I to gotta also mention the economic model of how golf now grew besides the acquisition was the most clever thing I have probably seen in my almost 30 years of, of business. And when Comcast, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get the history here, but when Comcast bought the golf channel and they acquired through that golf now, it was around the time of the recession. Golf courses had unbelievable amounts of inventory available, right? They probably, their T-sheets would barely be 40% full over the course of a week. So there's a lot of availability. So Golf Now would come up to a golf course and say, Larry, you own a golf course. And I'm the Golf Now sales rep. I'd say, Larry, hey, I'm from NBC Golf Channel, you know, and we've got, you know, amazing technology. We got your T-sheet technology. We got your website technology. And we got this awesome site called Golf Now where we're going to sell your tee times online. And we're going to use the Golf Channel to advertise it. Oh, my God, that's even better, right? And guess what? It's not going to cost you anything. Well, what do you mean it's not going to cost me anything? All you got to do is once you give us all your tee times, one tee time a that gets sold on golf now, we keep the revenue for one tee time, four players, you know, one tee time. And you can negotiate when that might be because you don't want to give away the 820 tee time on Saturday right, morning right, golf right, now because it's worth right, a lot right, economically. So you right, might negotiate, right. you might have some negotiations on what that tee time is, right? And so, okay, you know what? I can spare tee time because I'm only selling 40% of my total inventory. No problem. And I get all this stuff and it doesn't hit my PL. There's no cost. I don't, you know, there's nothing on my, my, uh, right, you right. know, I don't, I don't pay a bill. Okay, great. You, once they got hundreds and thousands of courses on board, they amassed an inventory of what we call bartered tea times, right? They're selling all tea times, but the bartered tea times is where they make their money. So no shock here. If you're a customer of golf now, or if you get their emails, what are they promoting every single day? They call them their hot deals. Hey, buy your hot deal. All right. The problem here, here's the kryptonite of all this, is these golf courses gave Golf Now the ability to price those tee times up to 80% off the, the price wow. of even the adjacent time. So wow. if the hot deal was 1040 a.m. on a Wednesday and the rack rate is 50 bucks, they could sell it for 20 or even $15 
And the, the next tea time is that $50 price. And so it's like, well, why wouldn't you buy that one? Right. Right. And then right. you say, listen, I know you're not, I know you're not going to get revenue for these, these tea times, but the guys that come in, they're going to buy stuff from you. They're going to buy hot dogs. They're going to, and it right. turns out and that's not the case because these are the, you know, I, I hate to use the word bottom feeding, but you know, these, yeah, the, they these are, the they guys are, are just, yeah, yeah, yeah they're, 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 they're the not coming to the shop and buying a shirt and a putter. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not. Right. So they were so successful with this because it hit the industry right during the height of the recession when it's like, yes, I'll do anything to keep the golfers coming. And then fast forward three or four or five years. And they say, you know what? We've built an email marketing tool. We've amassed, and Calissa, you're in Cleveland, Larry. We've got 60,000 golfers in the Cleveland market that get our emails. Would you like us to do some email marketing for you? Just your golf course to that list. Well, sure. It'll cost you another tee time. Oh, okay. I can spare two. Sure. Here's two. All right. So now Golf Now has two hot deals per day on your golf course on their site that you get no revenue for. Okay. Fast forward a year. Um, you know, those, you know, all those golfers we've been sending you, you know, the hot deal golfers. Yeah. We're not going to give you their email addresses anymore. Yeah. I know we've been giving you their email addresses for four or five years, but we're not going to, you know, they're really our customers first. So we're not going to share the email address. What do you mean? Well, unless you give me another tea time. Wow. Like what? You know? And so, wow. so I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even being hyperbolic here, but, but it just, it added up, adds up. There are, there are some golf courses that have, you know, I'd say absentee owners, you know, that have five, six tea times a day that they're given to golf now in exchange wow. for services, wow. technology, access yeah. to different programs and services. And so, and I've been the one voice since 2015 flying this flag that's saying this is bad. I'm not saying don't do business with golf now. What I'm saying is the barter method and giving up price is what's killing, what was killing this industry Absolutely. all the yeah. way up until 2020. And then in 2019, golf now, number one, buys number two, tgolf.com, right? From the PGA Tour. Number one buys number two. There is no number three. So what do I do? I knock on the door of the Department of Justice. I say, yeah. look, can I get a meeting with your antitrust? And I got a meeting with the assistant attorney general over antitrust. Wow. And like I go that's... there with one, one of my staff members and we're the, we go to the office. They, they, they have seven lawyers around the table and I get to make the case as to why this is uh, a breach of antitrust. You know, yeah. you know, um, and that this merger should never have happened because it was approved by the federal government, but it should never have happened. It was a mistake. And so I make the case for this and um, I tell the whole story about the software aggregation, yeah. all of these things and their job. And I hate, sorry, we're going down this rabbit hole here, but no, this is good. This is fascinating. Go ahead. <laughs> no, so they're, they're, the lawyers at the, at the Department of Justice, their job was to try to make my case seem as small as possible and insignificant as possible. And my job was to make it seem as significant as possible. Right. And if I made my case, then they would investigate. Well, I made my case because they did an active investigation. They took it up as an active investigation, but they keep you in the dark as far as what they're gonna do. Yeah, right, my, right. Only, my only role during the investigation was to introduce them to a handful of golf course owners and operators so they can talk directly with the owners about the case and what's happening. Right. So they did. And, uh, and then I assume they talked to the golf now folks and all of a sudden um, it quietly concludes. And I don't hear anything about why or why not it's going forward and the investigation stops. And it gets and this is during the Trump administration and the the posture towards the tech and I, I frame this as a tech story. It's not a golf story. It's a technology story. You know the the posture towards the tech sector took a different direction under the Biden administration.
administrations, much more, uh, much more scrutiny over these acquisitions right, during the Biden right. administration. But at the time, so we didn't get anywhere with that particular um, investigation. But I still, to this day, we fly the flag of the dangers of barter. And we know that golf courses have been moving away. And in the whole COVID demand bump kind of proved out in many cases that you don't need some of these services. You take marketing into your own hands and develop customers and relationships directly with them and only use these third parties if, you know, in the right circumstances. If you're in a transient market, if you're in the middle of Iowa and you're not getting visitors, your golfers don't need, you don't need to be on golf now in these other places because the golfers know you. They know who you are. They can book right, directly. Right. You, right. go to, you go to Myrtle Beach, you go to Atlanta, you go to Southern California, these things become a lot much more useful in, in, in the golf space, right? So, but just these ongoing battles, ongoing issues that, you know, I'm always. Uh, so this is all still people. going on, it sounds like. So the government, you know, you know, wraps it up without doing anything. And you've educated your golf course operators about, hey, you know, be careful of the barter and some of the other stuff. And but it's an ongoing thing. There's no sort of detente that's been reached. It sounds like it's more just your 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 members who are you know the ones that are contracting with you know the the tea time operated golf now is are more educated and perhaps making somewhat between that and the COVID experience. Sounds like they're making perhaps some different decisions. Is that fair? That that is fair. I think some of it has to do with the software market, like. Golf course owners do want to use the best possible software for them. So they might migrate away from golf now if they think. And there has been a new crop of software companies in our space that have really been competing and offering, you know, I guess, more modern technology in many cases or different technology. So they migrate away for that. They learn from us. The COVID bump as well. When, you're, when demand is off the charts, you start kind of uh, shedding away these things that you don't need, that you need relied anymore. on right. when the economy right. was bad. Right, And so, yeah, that's part of it. Actually, we have one story from a golf course owner that in the summer of 2020, he was, he was on Golf Now with a couple of his courses. And the summer of 2020, the link between his tee sheet and the Golf Now website was broken and nobody knew it. Like his tee sheet, in other words, his tee times were not showing up on Golf Now for about six weeks. And during those six weeks, demand was off the charts. They were getting right. golfers left and right off. And, they, and then when they kind of woke up and said, oh, man. We haven't been on golf now for six weeks and our revenue and our and our and our and our business is off the charts here. It's kind of like, wait a second. Why do we need him? Why why do we need him? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we try telling those stories. (laughs) But no, but nothing, but not nothing, nothing brings it home like actual experience, right? So um that's great. That's fascinating to me. I knew that that would be an issue for you guys. Um, and that's really interesting the way. Let, Let me sort of throw a couple other things at you. I mean, um, Non-green grass operations. So, you know, I'm thinking of Top Golf in particular, I guess Five Iron in the New York area, a few others. Um, how so those aren't golf course owners, but yeah. you know, they're part of the ecosystem. You know, I think people are hopeful that, you know, it gets people interested in the game and maybe they kind of migrate ultimately, some of them from Top Golf to actually teeing it up perhaps at one of your members' courses. How do you sort of see them fitting into the picture and any thoughts you have? I'm curious on those folks. Sure. Um, so I, I don't even remember when I first heard about Top Golf, but when I did, I thought, oh, this is a pretty cool thing, you know? Um, and I didn't, it might've been right when I was coming back to the golf industry. And 
I think the first top golf in America was around 2005, 2006, 2007, sometime around there was the first one in, I think, McLean, Virginia area. So, you know, not a known entity, right? But I come back to golf in 2015. And then in the summer of 2016, I, I speak at a golf conference in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm there mm -hmm. and I see, a, I see a simulator, this beautiful simulator set up. And it was, I think the Golf Zone was the company that was set up there. And I hadn't stepped into a simulator probably in many, many years because back when I was at NGCOA the first time, simulators were mostly training, you know, kind of things like, hey, that's where you're going to, or you might have, the rich people might have one at home for fun. Right, right. You know, but they, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't ubiquitous or anything like that. So modern day simulator in 2016, I step in, I hit some balls, like the robotically, the ball kind of comes out and, like, right, like, right. and I'm hitting into a screen <laughs> with amazing graphics. I thought, holy mackerel. It's like a light bulb went on, you know, for me, I was like, this is something like I started thinking about the business possibilities here. Right. So right. I immediately got very bullish about this thing that we later call golf entertainment. I don't know if it's the right word or not, but golf entertainment is kind of the, the, the phrase we used to cover the whole sector that you're talking about here. Right. And so that's when I first the, the kind of the pilot light got lit for me. Like, wow, this is amazing. And then top golf enters the scene in a big way. They're starting to proliferate around 2015, 2016. And the question of the day then was what will be the effect to the green grass facilities? The right. golf, the existing golf courses are thinking, are, is this friend or foe? Friend are or foe, deliver, exactly. Right. Yeah. Are they going to deliver golfers to me or not, or what have you? And from the beginning, I've said, Larry, that's the wrong question to ask because okay. uh, top golf, what they want is they want their customers to keep coming back to top golf. There was, yeah. there was no reason for them to say, Hey, now let's turn you over to, you know, green grass golf and, 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 and have a good time. No, they're going to get people coming back. And so I, I thought, well, on one hand, I, I'd call them frenemies at the time. Right. So it's like, look, yeah, it's, I mean, to me, it was more like the answer of what you do on a Saturday night than what you do on a, on a, you know, Thursday, you know, afternoon with your buddies. Um, but anything that put a golf club in someone's hand, I thought this is good. Anything that puts a golf club in someone's hand is good. So I'm like, all right. And I was, as I was learning about the simulator business, I was learning that in Korea, they have over 5,000 of these locations in South Korea called uh, golf cafes. They call screen golf over there. But basically on every street corner, there is this F and B business, food and beverage with, you know, five to 10 simulators. And that's what everybody does after work. They go there and that's where elementary school kids learn how to play golf because there's a shortage of golf courses and access to right, golf courses right. in Asia. And so this is like, oh my gosh, like, Imagine if this took hold in America. And so I started getting very bullish in my columns uh, in the Golf Business Magazine, my speaking engagements, like we all need to embrace this technology. We've got to, and this is 2016, 17, 18, just getting bullish. It's starting to ramp up. Top golfs are opening up. And I'm telling, say the wrong question is, will this impact my golf course? I said, the right question you should be asking is, how do I emulate this at my golf course? Yeah. yeah. How, do I, how do I bring this technology to my space? Yeah. Because I already have the database of, of enthusiastic golfers. How do I not only bring it to my, my own golf course, I was trying to encourage golf courses, go into the main streets of your little towns where commercial real estate's taken a hit, the, the dead Walgreens and build a simulator business there and have two campuses and cross pollinate with each other, right? And that's what's happening. X golf, five iron golf, all of these things are happening. And with top tracer range, that's bring, that's turning these, these you know underutilized driving ranges at golf courses or even standalone driving ranges turning these underutilized pieces of real estate into entertainment right. centers because they're, they're emulating a top golf thing on a smaller scale. They're turning into food and beverage businesses, entertainment. You know, it's just amazing. So to me, it's, you know, it's a blended 
sector now because of bringing so much of that technology to the golf course. But if it's a standalone indoor place, I'd say, you know, actually the NGCOA board level area, we've been talking about, should we create, should we, should we uh, invite them into the membership as well? Right. And because these are like electronic golf, they're electronic golf courses, right? Right. That's what they're right. Absolutely. Golf that, that Absolutely. Playing, right? So yes, it's, it's, it's maturing as a sector for sure. There are probably five or six just around Charleston, South Carolina, where I live now. There's a top golf plus all these simulator places. So someone's going to take care of them as a collective. And it's a matter of, you know, whether we do or they self organize and create an association of indoor golf centers or what have you still a little bit up in the air, but our board is seriously considering welcoming them into the membership, but not just well, but like serving them. What do they need? Do they need their own conference? Do they need their own online chat group where they can problem solve together? So we're, we're contemplating it right now as we speak, actually. That's fascinating. I love it. No, no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, one other discrete issue, and then we'll talk a little bit about the game generally, uh, but I'm just curious, this is, it's not exactly down the middle of the fairway for your members, but it's certainly relevant. Um, and that is uh, an article I'm sure you read in Golf Digest early 2022 about the working conditions for golf pros. Um, and that got a lot of attention. Um, and and that's got to be of relevance to your members because they're employing these folks. Um, yeah. And so I'm just curious kind of um, how you kind of think about that, how you kind of grapple, because it was pretty, oh, I guess I'll say it was a pretty dark article uh, reading it. Um, and, and I'm just sort of curious kind of how you guys have thought about that and grappled with it. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, we're grappling with the labor issue in our industry as an association, as as all the associations I mentioned around the, uh, earlier, we're all trying to figure this out, right? How to crack the code of recruiting and retaining great talent at our golf courses. Now, when you look at that article in particular, I think there was a special emphasis on the kind of the private club. There was, golf yeah. Club. There was. Right. And so that's I mean, we got to also remember that, you know, 20, 25 percent of golf courses in America are private clubs. So you know, 75 percent are public operations. Not saying we don't have our issues because we do. And I'm going to get to that. But the but the focus is was not only am I working sun up to sundown seven days a week or six days a week or whatever. And, you know, the fallout from that, which is real. But there's also that added layer of uh, the members always want a piece of you. Right. It just never ends. Right. That's right. And so they feel like that, they that own is, you because you're at their club. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes. That and that is a, a distinctly private club challenge yeah. for sure, because of the public golf course, the golfers go home for the day. You might have some crazy, you know, <laughs> right. You know, right. and they don't they don't live at the club. They don't live at the course. They don't treat it. You know, they don't see it as their own like a member does. Right. And so um, but there's there is, you know, to any caricature to any exaggeration or any stereotype, there's usually a little truth behind it, right? And so in this case, um, I wouldn't say this This paints the picture of the entire industry, but there's truth behind this, that it is a difficult job. It has been sun up to sundown. And I think that we rested, not on our laurels, but we, what, we, what we rested on for a generation or two is someone's love of golf, that the love of the game is what's going to be the, uh, that's enough fuel There'll always be fuel in your tank because you love the game so much. But what the article obviously exposed was they don't even get to play golf, right? right. Especially during right. COVID when right. everybody and their sisters come in to play golf. Right. Well, who gets to play less golf because they're working around the clock? It's the pro, right? So we have this um, 
mismatch of expectations and delivery that, you know, people coming into the game and, you know, for the love of it. Now, that being said, you know, also at the same time, golf pros have been kind of, a lot of them have been relegated to behind the counter, like bean counters. And I got to, I got to run the business and I got to do the, you know, the accounting and the T-sheets, sorry, the T-sheets and the marketing and all this. I'm not out there with the customers playing golf and teaching and what have you. So the, 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 the role of the professional has evolved considerably over time. In fact, there's a lot of pressure on the PGA of America to graduate men and women that know how to run a business, not just right. know how to, as they say, fold shirts. You know, these are shirt, right. shirt folders. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, no, so, yeah. so again, caricature and hyperbole there. But um, the, so the PGA did, has done an amazing job updating their education to be much more comprehensive, much more about how to understand the financials and run the business of a golf course, which is great. But the culture, we're to, what we're talking about here is workplace culture, really. And right. it has to do with right. the fact that that the golf industry hasn't figured out, by and large, what the restaurant industry has figured out. And that is, you know, shifts, S-H-I-F-T. <laughs> you know, like how to run shifts. Why does someone have to work sun up to sundown and, and, and six days a week? You mean you tell me you can't figure out how to give someone two days off a week? Because in the high season, giving two days off a week in certain areas of the country is blasphemy. Like, why would you do that? You know, right, you don't want right. to, you don't want to be the first golf course to give your pro two days off a week because then maybe the others are going to have to do it. Right. right so right. so a lot of, <laughs> a lot of cultural baggage that has stuck around when the world around us has changed rapidly work from home. When you, when you see people in the ability to work from home, flexible work hours, uh, you know, benefits that the small business can't offer sometimes, but large corporations can, you see the world changing around you. And you start, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, kind of coveting that, you know, taking stock of what your job and what your life is, especially COVID has caused a lot of people to, to reevaluate their relationship with work, right? Yeah, they called it totally. the great resignation, you know, in 2020, 2021, the great resignation, all these people leaving work, not coming back. I call it more of a great reevaluation because yeah, it caused you to think, I agree you know, with you. man, I, I love this time with my family. Man, working from home was actually a lot better than I thought it was. How can I seek work that will allow me to continue this stuff, right? Exactly. You can't, exactly. You can't phone in the, the PGA professional no. job. Right? right. But that being said, we've got 15,000 small businesses in America in the golf industry. And we can do a better job of improving the workplace. If we improve the workplace, which is what I think our unique role is in the game and with our, with our associations and so forth, is to figure out how to teach golf course owners and operators how to run progressive workplaces, workplace culture, so that we can attract and retain not just who we have now, but the next generation, because their values are very different than my values or my parents' values. So how do yeah. we... How do we bend in their direction while staying successful as a business? That's the code that we're trying to crack. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense and and all extremely well said. Um, let me sort of turn uh, kind of as uh, get you out of here, uh, but it's a not a small topic <laughs> as I turn to it is sort of um, growing the game. And we, we've talked we talked about COVID a few times and how obviously golf being, you know, I guess the quintessentially socially distanced sport that it was, you know, had a tremendous boom and, you know, hopefully we're trying to keep some of these players, but I'm just curious kind of, you know, with that as a jumping off point, how you sort of see as we sit here in 2023 going forward, five, 10, 20 years, you know, growing the game. I know, I think I saw you at one point um, quoted as saying that we're not um, fishing where the fish are. 
Um, and I'm just sort of curious with that in my kind of how you think about, are we still not fishing where the fish are? Or what do you think generally about growing the game? Curious at your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, you know, we have been at this as an industry for a long time when we saw that supply and demand curve changing, right? And back then, there were no identifiable national programs, collective efforts to kind of grow the game. And over time, there have been the introduction and the success, you know, of a lot of really wonderful programs for people to get in the game. They're ubiquitous now. I mean, just about every public golf course, every private club has some kind of um, uh, polished program to get people into the game. So I'm not worried about the programming anymore. You got Op 36, you got Junior League Golf, you got all of these things that are that did not exist a long time ago. So that's wonderful. That's the first step. You got to have something for them, right? But then you got to look beyond that, obviously, and think, all right, well, we're still culturally an invitation game, an invitation sport, right? Where we expect people to come to us, especially private clubs. Private clubs aren't going, generally aren't out in the marketplace advertising to come to our private club to learn how to play golf. They keep it within their four walls. The public golf courses certainly try to do that. But you still got to, if you're not comfortable with golf, you got to figure out a way to get to the golf course. If, you, if your parents have never, if you as parents have never golfed, you don't know anything about what to do, where to start, right? So to your point of we got to fish where the fish are, I'll, I'll get narrow on this because there's still like, there's still broad issues, very macro issues here when it comes to demographics, culture, uh, welcoming environments, all of these things we've been talking about for decades. And we're, we're so slow to move, Larry. We're the only two institutions slower than golf are the church and the bank, you know, as far as, <laughs> as you know, as far as pace of change, right? I, I'm serious. I, and, and that's, it's tough. It's really, really tough. It is, Sometimes yeah. it works in your advantage because people love, tradition they love right. certain things about it too so it's a bit of a double-edged sword but to get a little bit narrow on this the comment of we got to fish where the fish are what i talk about as a parent myself i've got a 15 and 17 year old but eight years ago when i'm back at ngcoa kind of analyzing all of this my kids were pretty young and we're getting them into basketball baseball football soccer and we go to our local parks and rec division to get them into these team sports. That's where all the parents go. Sign Jonah up for football. This is where you go. Rare do you find golf in those spaces in the same yeah. way as these other sports, yeah, right? Exactly. Um, you're lucky if you've got a municipal golf course in your area where they're going to market the municipal golf course and some programs to the local citizens. You're lucky. And you're probably going to be limited to summer camps as far as programming and availability maybe you know maybe lessons here and there but as a parent you're thinking i want little johnny to be on a team with other people you look at golf you're like i can't figure this out there's no team here there's no you know is he going to play with his friends oh my gosh what does he need all of these things right where football you just show up you know they'll tell you what right right you know where it's a great point or whatever yeah and you're going to be point. on a team with your friends right and this is where this is where 90% of American parents are sending their kids to pick up sports. Golf, this is where we're not, this is where I'm saying fish where the fish are. That's where the fish are. The parents are there. And now, now I'm going to give you another layer to this is that more and more parks and recreation divisions are becoming gatekeepers to all kinds of activities in their communities. You want karate lessons for a six-week period? You go to your local parks and rec and they've got a partnership with the local dojo. Because the local dojo has gone to the Parks and Rec Division and say, look, I'll give you a cut of the registration fee if you help us sign up kids. That happens with all kinds of programs around America. What golf needs to do, my opinion, 
is you take the Op 36, you take the Junior League Golfs, you take all these wonderful programs that exist out there, and there are dozens of them, and you work with the Parks and Rec Division, let them be your recruitment arm so that because otherwise they've got to know to go to the local golf course right. to no, find out what point. the hell's going on, right? So to me, that is where we're missing the mark where kids of all economic levels, kids of all colors and all genders, this is where they're going. And golf is a minority sport in, in those contexts. And it, we could be an equal sport. Now that we've established golf as a team sport with, uh, you know, certainly with junior league golf, the PGA of America is junior league golf. It's a team sport. They have a national championship on television, you know, for junior league golf. Right. So it's all there, Larry, it's all sitting there. And my job is to try to, you know, maybe this is why I'm on that top 25 most powerful. People. <laughs> you know, I, 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 don't, I don't have a lot of resources. Larry, we're a small budget organization. But what I do is I try influencing the power brokers and I try saying, like, guys, let's come to the table and make right. this happen. That's that one is a large ask because that is a fragmented world. The parks and is. world is it all really fragmented, is. right? Right. And so, but but I'm telling you, Larry, there's something there. And to me, that would be that would be a key to unlocking amazing connectivity and growth of the sport. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And um, I know you don't have a lot of resources, but you're so compelling the way you talk about it, that you have the power of the word and the pen and your social media presence to be sure, which is a great voice um, in our game. Hey, Jay, I really appreciate this. This was I knew this would be fun talking with you. And it was that and more. It was just great chatting with you about all this stuff. You are an important voice in the game. Keep doing the great stuff you're doing. And um, thank you so much for making time for us today. Well, I appreciate it, Larry. Maybe one year from now, let's talk and see what has changed in the industry. Exactly. We'll have a follow-up. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Take care.